Thank you, Pastor Nathan. It's good to see you, church. I'm glad you are here on this beautiful Lord's Day. I'm glad that we can make it out to a Sunday evening together. Uh, Yes, as Pastor Nathan said, we're in the book of Malachi. Uh, We're going to begin a brief series through this uh, prophetic book, the last of the prophets here in the Old Testament, and I'm excited. Nathan kind of introduced us to some of the minor prophets a couple weeks ago uh, by going through the book of Obadiah, and we're going to kind of, jumping off of that study that he did in Obadiah, we're going to look at this book of Malachi. Uh, So I hope you're still there. We're going to basically, what my plan is for tonight is to sort of introduce the book to you, uh, give you a large overview of what it is, put it into context historically and all that kind of good stuff. And then also, I think, hopefully draw out from the opening few verses of this first chapter what I think is the theme that carries over throughout the entire four chapters here. Um, as Pastor Nathan was saying a couple weeks ago, it kind of goes without saying, though, but I'll, I'll reiterate it anyways, that these minor prophets, actually the 12 minor prophets that make up your Old Testament, are not, so to speak, minor because of their significance. Uh, the books of Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and yes, I had to write them down so I didn't forget. <laughs> they constitute what we are, know as the minor prophets only because of their length. They are rather shorter than what we would classify as the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, um, which are significantly longer, significantly more uh, sort of, we could say, robust in terms of not just length, but what they cover and what they do for the people of Israel. Some believe that these minor prophets, these 12, were actually, quote-unquote, a book of 12, which just means that uh, some believe that they were composed of one singular book that has been divided, but uh, I don't know what to really weigh in on that. We can take that for what it's worth. (laughs) Essentially, while these uh, minor prophets, they all have a similar tone. You'll notice, if you read a lot of them, they have this uh, sort of, this this theme running throughout them, Referencing the day of the Lord, especially it appears in Joel uh, predominantly, but it comes up here too, so it's something to keep a watch of. But I would say very, uh, right at the outset, I think that these minor prophets, and I would say especially Malachi, not just because I'm biased because I'm studying it, but I think Malachi has a lot to say to you and I here this evening, a lot to take to heart, a lot to actually uh, reflect on, especially as those in the church who are facing, we might say, unknown days, uncertain futures. And I think that the message of this book is one that I pray will speak right to where you are. So a couple of things about this book as we begin studying it in depth, or what I hope is in depth. Um, it's interesting to note that one of the reasons why Malachi stands out from the other Old Testament books and even from among all the other prophets is precisely because we don't know anything about the author. Uh, the book of Malachi is often attributed to a man named Malachi, but he actually has no biography or background to speak of. We can't really go and look up where he came, where he come, came from or uh, sort of what his family life was or even who perhaps taught him what prophetic school he hailed from or anything like that. In fact, this is really the only, uh, all we know about him is here in this book. He's quoted a couple times in the New Testament, uh, but it's only about three or four times if I remember correctly. There's just not a lot of history about him. There's not a lot of 
details we can find out about them. And to add even to some of the more, we could say, uh, uh, mystery to this book and the mystery to this man, Malachi actually means in Hebrew, my messenger, which has led some to believe that this is just a pseudonym. It's just uh, someone writing this book anonymously. Which I think is really fascinating to think about this book in terms of it being an anonymous prophetic book that was given to the people of Judah. He's writing here, obviously with, and we could say he's preaching here, obviously with a message given to him by Yahweh for Yahweh's people. And he does so entirely losing himself in the message. One of the things that stands out to me, if uh, whether his name was Malachi or whether that is just a title for who he was, it, you can take it either way. The point is still the same. He is a messenger who is entirely lost in the message that God has given him. Uh, he doesn't seek to sort of benefit from this message or anything like that. And, and I, I think that's one thing that comes to the fore, especially here as we begin, is Malachi is one who is totally devoted to the words that God was giving him. And he's doing so precisely because he is seeking to bring the people back. Obviously, a lot of these prophets were books that were written to the people of Judah or the people of Israel in times in which they were far removed from where God would have them. We sort of mentioned some of that this morning as we are examining 2 Kings chapter 12 and the time and when Joash went away from the Lord. And what did the Lord do? It says in 2 Chronicles 24, the parallel passage, that he sent them prophets which I don't think was a one-time occurrence. It wasn't just one time when the Lord divinely intervened and sent messengers to speak to his people, speak the message of, yes, truth and righteousness, but also the message of repentance and forgiveness. That, that's one thing that I think stands out to me, and I, I know it'll stand out in this particular book as we get there, is that, yes, when you read the prophets, sometimes they come across harsh, and necessarily so. They're calling out the people for the ills that they have allowed in their society, in their religion. But underneath, and perhaps I would say, all of those messages of harshness and reality, they're grounded and rooted in the precise fact that when they turn to the Lord, they will find a face that forgives them. But here we have Malachi, this author who is unknown. And actually, even more interestingly, I think to me, is that the date is almost as unknown as the author. It's hard to pin down when this book was composed or published with a lot of varying possibilities for perhaps when it occurred. And one of the reasons why that is somewhat difficult is that Malachi, throughout, he doesn't really mention a person or a place or an event that we could sort of pinpoint where it might happen. He doesn't really relate to anything outside of his message which I think is a fascinating detail to sort of wrap your minds around. He's, again, solely lost in the message that he is, has been given to give to God's people. There is a couple of clues that we might sort of use as a way to sort of give us an idea of somewhat of the context. For example, look at verse number 8 of chapter 1. You'll notice... Um, he uses an interesting word, the word governor. It says, and if ye offer the blind for the sacrifice, is it not evil? And if ye offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now to thy governor. 
Will he be pleased with thee or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts? This word is actually a word that was used by the Persians. And in fact, it's used a couple of times in the prophetic books of, of uh, the prophetic book of Haggai, but also in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah too, which you might, uh, or it should ought to make you think of in uh, 538 BC when the king of Persia, Cyrus, decreed that all of Israelites could return to their homeland. It sort of has that intonation and sort of that implication there, this idea of this governing, or actually should say this sort of political or civil title being used in this way, sort of situates it perhaps at least after 538. But then he also makes mention, if you read through this book, and you can do so quite quickly, he makes mention several times of worship in the temple. Notice verse number 6 of chapter 1. A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? Saith the Lord God of hosts, O you priests that despise my name. And ye, and ye say, wherein have we despised thy name? Ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar. And ye say, wherein have we polluted thee? And that ye say, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And on and on he goes. And so it goes throughout this book. He, one of the main themes is sort of this uh, polemic against, against, we could say, the, the worship that was occurring in God's house. Which, again, ought to jog our minds historically, as we perhaps know that this is likely a reference to the second temple that, of course, Ezra was behind which completed its construction around 515. So perhaps we're, we're narrowing where we, perhaps we might situate this book after 538, perhaps after 515. And actually, much of the scholars who have examined this situate this book actually around, their age, around the range of 450 to 430 B.C. After Ezra, after sort of Ezra has done his thing, <laughs> After Nehemiah has sort of done his thing too near the tail end of that book. And there's a couple of reasons why actually as we're going to get to in a minute. Uh, uh, what Malachi does, there's a lot of, uh, lot of instances where he calls out, he, he is charging the people for the same errors that are mentioned in Nehemiah. Which has led many to believe he's sort of a contemporary of them. That he might have sort of been around or come right after the ministries of Ezra and Nehemiah. You have Malachi coming onto the scene. And in essence, it kind of provides us with, we could say, we could examine the, the audience of Malachi. The author is this unknown prophet. The date is sort of in this range at the tail end of Old Testament history, as we'll see in a minute. And the audience then would be these post-exile Israelites, these Israelites who have come out of exile and have returned home out of captivity again. The wall has been rebuilt. The temple has been rebuilt. And Along with that is this, this renewed excitement and resurgence in interest and concern for the things of Yahweh, for the things of the Lord and his word. A couple of months ago, we looked at Nehemiah chapter 8 and the great revival that comes on the people. And remember how they were just so concerned with the scriptures, so concerned with how to, to handle and conduct themselves in the Lord's house. And how to go about worship and, and feasts and all the practices that they, they should have been conducting themselves in. And there's that great and thrilling interest. And yet, what occurs, like humans do... <laughs> 
They quickly sink back into their old habits. The the old regime, we could say, of sin and self-righteousness very quickly and very strongly uh, regains its grip over the people of God. And that's why Malachi here throughout this book is very concerned about his brothers and sisters. Very, very sort of devoted to calling out their defilement. How they have gone away again and perverted and corrupted. And as he says there in verse number 7, polluted the worship of God. With what they're offering on this table. They are so negligent of what it means to really worship this holy Lord. They are so indifferent to what it really means to be the people of Yahweh. That's what he's calling them out on a a number of times throughout this book. In fact, in verse 6, he calls out the priests. As you notice that, uh, as he says there, oh priests... You despise my name. And he does so again in verse number 8 of chapter 2. He says, But you are departed out of the way, and you have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi. Of course, that's the tribe of the priests, saith the Lord of hosts. He has his interests turned on those who ought to be caring for and ought to be uh, sort of ministering to the people in the ways of the Lord, in the words of the Lord. And he's calling them out. If you, you don't have to, but you can write down Nehemiah 13, 29, because that's where he does the same thing. Interestingly enough, in Malachi, in chapter 2, he calls out the people for their unlawful views of marriage. If you read chapter 2, which we'll, we'll get to in a couple weeks, but chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, that's what he does. They've uh, sort of compromised on that very important covenant of who they marry. Which, if you want to know, Nehemiah 13, 23 through 27 is where he does the same thing. Malachi then also calls out the people in a, in a pretty, uh, we could say, resonant passage on how the people have neglected uh, their responsibility in giving to the house of the Lord. Something that I think is, is often sort of not really thought of a lot, but here he, he calls them out on this in, in a very prominent fashion in Malachi 3, 7 through 12, which, again, Nehemiah does in Nehemiah chapter 13. So he's calling out, we could say prosecuting in a way, the people of God, specifically the people who are faithful to the things of Jehovah God. And he's doing so in a way, uh, yes, like all the other prophets, he's doing so in a way not just to make the people feel miserable, although they should because they've forgotten their responsibility, they've forgotten their calling. And he's doing so to bring them to a place of repentance. He's reminding the people of who they serve, of who their God is. And he's, he's so concerned with bringing these people to a place where they see and they know and they recognize all of their faults and, and failures, the ways they have erred, all of their deficient acts of worship, their deficient acts of obedience. As we're going to get to, much of what Malachi does here, and interestingly enough, I think, is that there's sort of like this hinting at this is some of the things that Jesus calls out the Pharisees for. You can kind of see it, some of the seeds of that here in this book, with the formality of worship. 
The idea that we are the ones who can, can bring about God's favor by how we act and how we function as people in God's house. This is what Malachi is calling out. This is what he is very much bound to bringing to the surface. And he does that for a specific reason, to draw the people, again, back to the mercy of their father. The father who has delivered them, who has cared for them, who has been faithful to them all of these thousands of years. Which, again, makes this book an interesting book. It's confrontational, yes. Like many of the other prophetic books, it has this polemic element where he's, he's not pulling any punches, <laughs> He's not pulling anything out uh, that might offend someone. But he does so in a very pastoral way. Because I think that's his heart. His heart is for these people. His heart is for the heart of his brothers and sisters in the Lord. And I think that to me as we sort of examine this book as a whole. And as we're going to get to these first couple verses here. I think what is most fascinating to me is uh, almost everyone has agreed that. Where this book is placed in the Old Testament is exactly where it ought to be. Which is just in the sense that it's the last of the Old Testament prophets. And we could say the last book of all of the Old Testament writings. This of course would be the book that closes out the Old Testament right before the 400 years of silence. In between uh, that first dawning we could say of Jesus and the nativity. And uh, 400 years in between that. The intertestamental silence if you will. Which makes these God's last words to his people. God's final prophetic sermon. To the people that he is so concerned for, that he is so devoted to, that he has covenanted with and said, I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to ransom captive Israel. I'm going to bring you out of bondage. And that one day there is going to come a Messiah, my own son, the anointed one is going to come. This is the last message before 400 years of where that doesn't come true. (laughs) Which to me adds this really fascinating glimpse into what we could say. What are God's last words to his people? What does he have to say to them? What does he want them to hear? What are his parting words? Well, I think predominantly we see kind of what they are and what they're hinted at right here at the beginning of the book. In the first five verses that Pastor Nathan read. Go with me to them again. Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down. And they shall call them the border of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. And your eyes shall see and ye shall say, the Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. I think in a way. These words here capture much of the heart of this book. And I would, even, uh, I would even venture to say I think they capture the heart of the Bible too. 
Namely in just this, that there's this sense in which we as humans, sinful human beings who have been sinful from birth, sinful from the fall, we are never uh, ceasing to fail and forget God and what he does for us and in us and with us and through us. Here we are again, uh, roughly around the year 400 BC, and what are the people of God doing? They're still stumbling over themselves. Thousands of years have history, have come and gone. And yet what do we find the people of God doing? Still doing the same thing they did right after the Exodus. (laughs) Remember the last time they were brought out of captivity. What happened? (laughs) They failed God's law miserably. They failed that covenant, that covenant of holiness and truth and righteousness. And what did God do anyways? He delivered them and stayed faithful to his word. And yet here we are again, thousands of years later, and we find the people of God still doing the same thing, still in the same pattern of sin and rebellion and doing their own thing and going their own way. They're still seeing themselves as the ones who can get themselves out of their own mess. They're continuing to fail and forget God's words. And yet, what do we find also? That just as mankind is, is, we could say, unceasingly forgetful, so too is God unceasingly loving. Because notice what he says there in verse number two, wonderful words, I have loved you. And these words are very significant. Because it's not just... I have in the past. What is going on with these words is it's sort of, uh, sort of insinuating all of the tenses. I have, I am, and I will love you. And the people of God say, how, where, how have you done this? And then step back and think about the audacity of that question. They've just been brought back out of captivity again. And they're questioning God's love for them. <laughs> uncertain of how to pinpoint the ways in which he has loved them so amazingly that they can't see it. They're blind and doubtful to these promises and purposes of God. And it colors their worship. I think one of the things that you'll see is one of the reasons why they are so sort of in that formality and that formal mode of worship where they are the ones upon whom all of this thing depends The pressure is on them in their religion is because they are so concerned that they could lose or fail God's love or they're questioning it and they think they have to earn it back. It is the tone of all of their religion. And this note of prophecy actually, it's continued several times. You notice in verse 2, they question, where and hast thou loved us? Verses 6 what do they say? Where and have we despised thy name? We haven't, how, how have we forgotten you? How have we despised you? Verse number seven, where and have we polluted your table? How have we made your worship corrupt? Verse number 14 of chapter two, yet you say, wherefore? Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth. They're questioning God's words relating to their relationships. Verse number 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, wherein have we wearied him? How have we made him so grievous against what we have said and done? Chapter 3, verse 7, even from the days of your fathers, you are gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. But you said, wherein shall we return? Why do we have to repent? 
What do we have to repent of? They are crying out. Verse number 8 of that same chapter. Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, wherein have we robbed thee? How have we stolen? How have we taken away from you? We're still giving to the church. I think he's leaning into something more poignant than just monies. It includes that, yes. You see, these people are blind to their need of God. They're blind to, their, to how much they are desperate for him. They're, they're questioning his purposes, questioning his love, questioning his promises. God, where? Show us. And of course, this is Malachi sort of imagining these rhetorical questions. Very much this is like Paul. Remember in the, in the book of Romans where Paul has, uh, in chapter 5, he goes through that long and extended passage where he's talking about the two Adams, that Jesus is the second Adam who wins, uh, wins righteousness for those who have rebelled. And through him, through the obedience of one, many are made righteous, Paul says. And then he ends, chapter, I love this transition, chapter 5 at the end of Romans, Paul says, for where sin abounds, grace is more. Ooh, that's awesome. And then he imagines the question that they all have in their heads. Verse number 1 of chapter 6. So does that mean we should keep sinning so that grace may abound? By no means, Paul says. And he goes on to tell them how if you think that, you're misunderstanding what grace is. All of which to say, that's exactly what Malachi is doing. He's imagining these questions in the people's minds and answering them for themselves right here within his text. Showing them. The fallacy of their arguments. Bringing to the surface how much they have forgotten and failed. And yet how much God is faithful and will never forget them. And I think that's what. This to me is what makes Malachi so new, unique among all the other prophets. Is that yes. Throughout it there's these notes of accusation. Notes of indictment notes of judgment and prosecution on these people and rightly so for the ways they have let God down and the ways that they have failed to worship or the ways that they have worshiped that looks so contemptible and corrupt but again even as he does so there's this underlying we could say motif these notes of love that pepper this book that drive it forward. That's really what this message is about. It's a message of love. It's a yearning message of a God who loves them unceasingly to come back to him himself who is the God of love. This is his message to his people. And this, again, just think about what this prophecy sets the stage for. It's the last of all the Old Testament books. 400 years, four centuries of silence follow it. And one of the first things that sort of happen afterwards that get the ball in motion, so to speak. The announcement of the birth of John the Baptist and, of course, the incarnation of Christ. And that's, of course, what Malachi alludes to. Go with me to chapter 3, verse 1. Of course, he says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, i.e. Christ, whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. He's alluding to this 
One who's going to prepare the way for the messenger of the covenant. It's the pre-messenger, of course, we know as John the Baptist. And that's, if you go to the book of Mark, you don't have to. But you can, if you go to the book of Mark, that's how he begins. If you remember, well, let's, well, we can just go there. Mark chapter 1. He opens his book in such a fascinating way because he begins not with a nativity or anything like that. He opens right away with perhaps where Malachi ends his prophecy. Mark picks up his. Mark chapter 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face. Which shall prepare the way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John did baptize in the wilderness. And preached the baptism of repentance. For the remission of sins. And of course he knew. Who he was preaching about. Uh, Where's that verse? Oh yeah verse number 7. I was looking for it. Notice this is what John was preaching. His message. And preach, saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me, the lashet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. This reference in Malachi to this messenger, this sort of this insight into what they couldn't expect. It, again, enhances their longing and expectation of for all of these people for what they can anticipate at the coming of the Son, at the coming of the Anointed One. And of course, Malachi 2 references that. Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, notice what he says. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. And ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. That, of course, that wonderful title, the son of righteousness, is very much indeed a reference to Christ himself, the son of God who comes, as it says in Matthew chapter 3, to fulfill all righteousness. And so here we have this wonderful testimony For again, people of God who had perhaps tried and tested and yes, tried to see if they could um, sort of examine the ways in which they can put God to the test to see if his love will run out. (laughs) What is he here telling them throughout this message? That that's not even a possibility of happening. My love cannot be diminished. It cannot be relented. And in fact, his last words to his people is not just, I have loved you, but we could say, we could sort of insert the words with this reference to John the Baptist, with this reference to Jesus, that we could almost get this wonderful suggestion that Malachi's message is the fact that I have not just loved you in the past and am loving you now, but I'm going to love you in the future in a way you can't even comprehend. Because I'm not just going to send another prophet to you. I, myself, God, is going to come in the flesh as the God of love. Love incarnate is going to be with you. In a greater way than even these people could even comprehend. They, their, their lineage. You and I even too today. Are experiencing this love like never before. And so we could say that. These are the insights that this preacher gives to these people of how they could know and anticipate the dawning of this day of the Lord's love. It would come with that, as he says there, the son of righteousness arises. 
Of course, we know that to be Jesus. He's the embodiment of the Father's love for us, for his people, and for the whole world. I love what G. Campbell Morgan, that great uh, preacher and orator, he says this about this very section. He says, quote, God did not begin to love man when Jesus came. I love this. He says, Jesus came to roll back the curtain and show man the heart that was eternal, the love that was always there. Christianity is not God's alteration of attitude toward man. It is not that in the old dispensation he was a policeman and this a father. He has always been a father and he never changes. Malachi 3.6, for I am the Lord, I change not. <laughs> he doesn't change in his holiness, in his righteousness, in his truth. And yes, he doesn't change in the way he loves his people. And Jesus wasn't going to come to sort of change God's mind. He was going to come to show the people how much God loves them. So much so that he dies for them. So much so that he lives in their stead. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago when we examined John chapter 1. This idea that, you know, Jesus isn't the good cop to God the Father's bad cop. <laughs> that idea of these two ideas that there's two different gods. And, you know, you can hear that, that there's an Old Testament God, there's a New Testament. It's one God throughout the whole showing all of the world this heart of love. And as as Morgan says there, Jesus comes to roll back that curtain so everyone can't miss it. It's unmistakable. This is how much he loves you, with nails through his hands. And that's our only hope, I would say. Our only hope is just that, that for you and I, just like Israel, just like the people of God, who he had covenanted with, who just constantly fail, who constantly forget, who are constantly stumbling and getting in their own way, there is a love of eternity that is just as constant, that is just as unending, that is just as unchanging. And it is God's purpose through all these winding ages of history to woo and win his people back to himself by showing him how that love cannot be defeated. He doesn't change in his love for his people and his love for you and I. This is what Israel could cling to throughout all those days of the Lord's silence. And my friends, I would say this is what we can cling to as well in all of our days of frustration and doubt, disappointment, despair, and the seasons of life that don't go our way, what can we cling to? I, the Lord, change not. His love never ceases. His love never ends. I have loved you, he says, and so he will to the end of the age. Let us pray.